things you're not allowed to talk about at church. I'm your host, Logan Zapuri, with co-host Ben Wagner. Say hi, Ben. Howdy there. <laughs> we are ministry of apologetics.com, and I do want to take a moment and say that we are taking live calls this evening. Please call us if you have anything you'd like to mention at 888-995-5552. Again, the number is 888-995-5552. Last week, uh, last month rather, we, or a couple months ago, we addressed <laughs> the question, uh, should pastors who support abortion be fired? Again, take a look at that on anywhere you obtain podcasts, or if you were uh, were listening that evening, just recollect the, the incredible discussion that we had on controversial topics. This month, today, we're going to go over the question, should nationalists be Christian? Yes, indeed. And right off the bat, when you ask the question, should nationalists be Christians, that's a bit funky. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of stuff. The elections are coming up. A couple of years ago, we had the January 6th riots where a bunch of nationalists stormed the Capitol. So this was at the forefront of our minds going into this election season. There's going to be a lot of nationalistic topics. So we wanted to ask a question that was a bit controversial. Here at the Church and State Report, we talk about everything doing with sex, politics, and religion. And this seemed to be at the forefront of it. Yeah, with the election midterms two weeks away, it's a good topic. Uh, but there's something about the question that hopefully makes you think a little bit. Most people talk about Christian nationalists, but they don't talk about nationalists who are Christian. And the reason why, when Ben and I were discussing how to formulate this question, is there seems to be a, a an asymmetry to the question, right? On the one hand, when you say, should a nationalist be a Christian, you're going to say, naturally, as Christians, well, yes. Should a thief be a Christian? Absolutely. Should a mom or a dad or a child or a handyman or a mechanic be a Christian? You go, Yes. Mm -hmm. But when you flip the question, should a Christian be a nationalist, you almost get a automatic no. Right? <laughs> and for the same reasons, should a mom or should a Christian be a mom? You'd hopefully that the male Christians weren't out there trying to be moms. Should a Christian, you know, be a thief? Uh, we might have some moral qualms with that. Should a Christian be, you know, a handyman and go, well, if it's your vocation or something mm -hmm. like that. So I wanted to begin by having this discussion about the asymmetry of the question. What are some things that are kind of hidden in the language? Yeah. So whenever we ask the question, should A, B, B, it tends to indicate that there is some priority between the two. So for example, let's say I go up to a friend who is a Republican and I say, should you be a Democrat? That tends to indicate that there's some priority to this other thing. And so when I come up to the Christian and I say, should you be X, Y, or Z, that tends to indicate that there is a priority to the other thing that I am talking about. In this case, we don't want the Christian to be the other thing, but we want the other thing to be a Christian, which tends to indicate that the locus of value is rooted in something else. So whenever we have a person that is coming to the Christian faith, we want to say that their locus of identity should be rooted in Christ, but the person whose locus of identity is in Christ should not be rooted in other things. I think that's where the question really gets at, because when we ask the question, you know, should a plumber be a Christian? Yes. Why is that? Because the Christianity is the moral priority here. It has the most significance. But we do not want the Christian to be a plumber, a mom, or things of that sort. Yes, those can be a matter of vocation, but I think it is something rather of moral priority there. 
if that makes any sense. Yes. Well, the distinction, and I, I want to make this a little, a little clear, because the moral priority can be something about an identity. Mm -hmm. As Christians were called, right, to have our identity in Christ. That's mm -hmm. where it should be. But then there's which is more of a metaphysical priority, and then there should be moral outflowings from that identity. And this is where mm -hmm. you touched on a little bit, Ben, where the question, if you're a Christian, it should modify whatever you're doing, whatever your mm -hmm. vocation may be. It might tailor that vocation. It might modify the vocation. So, for example, should a Christian, if you identify as a Christian, mm -hmm. but were formerly, a, say, a prostitute or something like that, that should modify, there should be mo some moral modification mm -hmm. to the kind of actions you're participating in. So the distinction comes down to this. We have to have an identity priority. Mm -hmm. What are you? Are you a Christian? Do you root your identity in a thing like God? And then the question of what kind of actions are you doing? Mm -hmm. And this is something we actually talked about just before the show. It wasn't until probably about four or five, maybe six years ago, where actions became ground, like grounding for identity. It's a very bizarre thing. Like, you know, I am a homosexual. Not that literally, but the, the <laughs> idea you see this all the time, or I'm gay, you see this, where an act in this case, a sexual act becomes a grounding of identity or, you know, I'm a mechanic, right? Or I fix cars or a car fixer. Mm -hmm. I think in the car you had mentioned Benji, like we don't call dogs barkers, <laughs> right? Because this is a thing they do. Mm -hmm. So we want to keep that separate, the, the actions and the identities and going back to that metaphysical identity mm -hmm. of Christ. That's the priority in the discussion. Yeah. So the idea is when my identity is rooted in something, my actions then have to flow around that. So let's say for example, hypothetically that I'm a jock. I'm not, I am the most unathletic person on the planet, but let's say hypothetically I'm a jock. That is going to determine the things that I do. I'm probably going to skip class because I wanna spend more time in the gym. I'm not gonna to go to a couple of social events because I wanna spend more time at the field, things of that sort. The things around my identity have to conform to it. So I like to picture it as a big web where there's something that is at the center of it and it orients the things around it. And when we become a Christian, everything has to be oriented around Christ. However, when you are not a Christian, there are different things which take that conformity where everything must be abiding by it. In the case of the homosexual, it seems as though a lot of the identity revolves around that idea or in the circumstance that I am a criminal and I regularly steal things. My identity revolves around that to some capacity. So a good biblical example of this would be where Paul's talking in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, where he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. And then he goes on to say, for we know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those prax practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. That word conform there, I think, is very important in that when we talk about Christianity, the things are supposed to conform to it or be in line with the gospel. This is why you have language such as in, I believe, it's Philippians, where Paul is saying, hey, you guys, you're not walking in line with the gospel. It's not conforming your lives around it. However, when we have the non-believer, there is something else there. 
there is something else that everything in their life revolves around. And consequently, it's not what we would say is holy in the Christian's eyes. No, and I think and this is exactly true. So you have in this question, should nationalists be Christian? We want to say obviously yes. Mm-hmm. But we want, to, we want to tease that out that it seems like in language, and this is picked up by Plato, this is picked up by Gottlob Frege, this is picked up really by any philosopher, that language has an ambiguity that we want to tease out. And that is when we talk about nationalism, mm-hmm. there has to be an a priority or this idea of a fundamental identity has to be within the Christian realm, right? Within mm-hmm. Christ. The question then becomes, okay, if we want nationalists to be Christian, then what sort of moral flowing out of that will look like, right? Mm-hmm. But to get to that, to get to the point of like, how should how should nationalists change or how should nationalists act? We have to ask the question, okay, but what do we talk about when we talk about a nationalist, right? What, what does that come down to? Mm-hmm. So when we come to the nationalists, I think a good way of defining that would simply be somebody who has a love for the country in which they live, but their locus of identity is centered in that country. So let me give you an example of this. If I am, let's say, an alt-right activist and my identity is rooted in my country, and a little caveat to point out, when my identity is rooted in my country, it's not necessarily objectively what my country is. It's largely what my conception of the country is. So a hypothetical scenario where we could talk about the actual thing versus the conception of the thing would be a guy who falls in love with his conception of what a woman is. He fantasizes about who she is, the person, but when he's actually confronted with the real thing, it's a bit of a reality shake there. Yeah. And well, so, you, yeah, I think, you know, you think about, oh, it would be so fun to do these things. You know, you're like, oh, this would be the greatest day in the world because you'll love it. And then you go on and you're like, oh, it was absolutely miserable. And she, she didn't respond like I imagined. Like, this is a very, so, you know, daily, you know, expectation that we, that many people often live in. Mm-hmm. No, continue. Yeah, it's where your reality is confronted with your conception of what the person is. So the nationalist, their identity is rooted in their conception of their country. And consequently, everything must be oriented around that to some way, shape, or form. So a good example of a scenario in which things had to conform to the identity that the nationalist is creating would be the people on the January 6th riots or the always Trumper people. They had this conception in their minds that he had to win. There's no way the Democrats could possibly overtake him. And yet when information comes out that there was an election frauds. So for example, even recently, there was a prominent panel of conservatives. I believe it was a grand total of 30 or 40 of them. Some of them former Republican senators. Some of them were district attorneys, people of that sort. And they released a 72 page document where they looked at every single one of the 64 lawsuits that Trump brought forward. And they said that there was no widespread voter fraud and that it was just as prevalent amongst Republicans as Democrats. When you have evidence like that, this conception that, oh, Trump has to win. He has to be the person that we thought he was, the savior of America. When they're confronted with that, their conception is absolutely shattered. And so there are two ways this identity can then function. You can either reject the new information, which is contrary to the identity that you've already conceived of your nation, or you can come up with a new identity, say, okay, my paradigm is not functioning, so I have to come up with something new. In general, you tend to go with the view that you reject it. And it seems to be the case in all ways Trumpers, despite the 
swaths of evidence which disproved the claims that there was voter fraud and that Trump in fact lost, they were willing to reject that evidence and consequently just go along with these riots, overthrow the government and try and say, oh, this is what the country is. Mm-hmm. And so you can see how there's a problem there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, 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 so how we're going to define nationalists then in a way is that their identity is in the conception of a nation, of the nation itself. It could be a accurate conception. It could be an inaccurate conception. Right. And we Mm -hmm. gave some examples with like perhaps, you know, your girlfriend or your wife or maybe your friend. Maybe it's like (laughs) your best friend. You you give him that gift you think he's going to like and he thinks is an absolute horrible gift. You should never, ever get him something (laughs) again. So then from this question, though, we have to begin to ask, okay, how do we look at a a nationalist that is, you know, a Christian? Mm Mm-hmm. How does this modify, right? If once the, the identity is shift, once you're able to say, okay, we're to confront reality. So, cause this goes both ways, right? Mm-hmm. The globals can do the same sort of thing where they just sort of, you know, love the idea of a, you know, kind of meek and mild world in which <laughs> there can be this kind of government we place on the top and we'll all get along and we'll vote and the vote will come down just and we'll all agree, right? Mm-hmm. We can see the international order having some conflict with Russia and Ukraine, but that's just besides the point, right? Mm. So you can see it flow both ways. This idea you can confront reality or you cannot confront reality. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to do that somehow. But what if, But what, what for those who are Christian, mm-hmm. right? How does this modify the sort of the nationalistic sort of fervor, so to speak? Or... Or maybe, or maybe we can even take it as, as like a smaller on a smaller scale. What does it look like for an individual who say went on that fateful date, and uh, it was just a total nightmare, <laughs> right? Because you could say, well, it was her fault, right? Mm-hmm. There, there'd be a, there'd be a reassessment. You went from uh, this is who I thought she was to now I know she's just a horrible human being, and you know, so you've kind of flipped to something that's also not real to try to justify what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we first have to ask the question, what there is not functioning? And in this circumstance, the reality and the conception are not fusing very well. So in the circumstance that I completely reject the reality coming in front of me, I have to have everything conform to this particular identity. Whereas in the circumstance that I'm willing to be some outsider and evaluate new things, that is able to confront the information coming in and adapt to it. However, in this circumstance, in the nationalist circumstance, the identity is not rooted in externalities, but in the country itself. And consequently, I have no functionality there. So let me give you some more practical examples. If we look at each party's appeal to Christianity, they're trying to function in some way, shape, or form that takes aspects, but it only revolves around the country itself. So Democrats, in large portions, they take parts of the Bible that talk about fairness, equity, and those are good virtues in Christianity, but they're rejecting particular topics because, again, their identity is in this idealism or this nationalistic democracy. And similarly, Republicans, they'll focus on different things like making sure that people are given their due in the justice system or removing things that have to do with welfare systems because they believe that people are individually responsible. 
which again are Christian virtues, but it's revolving around the identity or the idealism espoused by this form of nationalism. Okay. No, no, okay. I think this is an interesting point. And I, <clears throat> I want to kind of flesh this out a bit, right? Because we talked about the nationalism part, this idea that it's a little convoluted, that at least, but we can start with an operating definition that it has to be a nationalist has to be grounded in their nation, right? It would not make sense for a nationalist to be grounded in like a global order or be grounded in not caring or something like that, right? Or, you know, apathetic or something. <laughs> and then you, you shifted, okay, but then there's the political parties. So one way someone can try to make sense of sort of the nationalistic appeal is to, to look at what are the political parties doing? And it seems like if you, you know, the Republicans or the Democrats, you have libertarians of the parties, but the prominent <laughs> ones, right? will appeal to the biblical text, right? So Republicans tend to focus on justice, on merit, on judgment in a case. Mm -hmm. The Democrats tend to focus on, you know, uh, the, you know this, the idea of, you know, an ax, right? We're going to take everything as one and distribute among the So, you know, this is why we do social welfare programs. You have Newsom doing, you know, the citing Mark for the abortion argument of loving your neighbor, right? One could ask the question, um, are these ways in which the Christian could attempt to have a better understanding of their conception of the nation by actually appealing to an incorrect conception of biblical principles, perhaps? Hmm. Is this what we're getting? Is this, is this sort of the trail you're going down? Kind of. So once again, I think it is trying to understand the Bible, but in a very convoluted way. When you approach it with this lens that my country, my people, my idealism that I have already espoused in my party. And if you use the Bible to justify it, but you only pick out portions of it, that's not actually trying to understand what the Bible is saying or things of that sort. That instead just becomes a form of self-authentication where you have values and you just want to reinforce them with whatever you can. And consequently, you pick and choose Bible verses out of context. So in either side of the party, you'll probably see instances of this. It's where your identity is localized in the country or in your party or something of that nature, as opposed to having your identity rooted in the Bible, an external thing. Okay. Okay, so okay, then let me shift gears in a little bit on this. Mm -hmm. Because this becomes an interesting question, especially with the election coming up and this accusation that you're just a Christian nationalist. Right? Mm -hmm. if, if you vote anything that has biblical principle, you're a Christian nationalist. This is kind of where it's going. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of wholeheartedly thrown out against Republicans, right? These are the Christian nationalists. They'll do these long reports. You know, okay, we're going to, you know, request evidence on January 6th. We're all the Christian symbols that you see these sort of symbi you know, symbolic interpretations of things. Mm -hmm. But it would seem that if you, if your definition of nationalism or even your definition of Christianity, if it's not grounded actually in, nations, as we just mentioned, or grounded actually in Christian text, then what you get is really everyone's a Christian nationalist within the Western tradition. Because mm -hmm. at any pivot point, any massive event, there's, they're going to appeal to the Bible in some way. We're a Western mm -hmm. civilization built up within the milieu or foundations of Christian ethics. Whether or not you can you know, conceive of them as your own kind of sacred documents, this is kind of a point to Jordan Peterson where it's like, you can't just step out of Western Civ because you're just <laughs> done with it. Like, there's generations kind of been growing up in this sort of Christian milieu that Democrats and Republicans 
and libertarians will appeal to Christianity or Christian-like principles. Oh, we love our neighbor. This is why we <laughs> should do it. Oh, you know, we 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 shouldn't steal because stealing is bad. Oh, you know, justice and charity are things we should advocate for. Just you know, down the street, there's you know all these banners, political ads that are saying, oh, like virtues still something we should achieve. And the assumption is we all though understand, all together understand what virtues they're talking about, namely, you know, the virtues of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So here's the question that I have for you then. How do we get away from just calling everything Christian nationalist and saying that nationalists can be Christian? It's a difficult question because if everybody's appealing to the same document and everybody's saying that it supports their side, well, yeah, you could call that Christian nationalism, but at the same time, would we really call that Christianity? Because again, it starts with that locus of identity. It is difficult to step outside the realm of Christian ethics, and there is kind of a hierarchy of values between the two parties. So a good point that a famous philosopher by the name of G.K. Chesterton argues is that a lot of Western values are not something that have gone away, but have been emphasized in different ways. So, for example, a lot of different areas in the West have emphasized different virtues. America, we like individualism. We're extremely hyper-free in that sense. And then you go over to different countries. So for example, Italy, they still value Christian ethics, but it's much more familial. So it's a different emphasis of the values that we have there. And in that sense, when you come to America, the different parties also tend to do something very similar. So for example, if you were to list off the virtues of the Democratic Party, there are probably going to be a more emphasis on equity, equality, justice, fairness. And if you go over to the Republican Party, it's probably gonna have a heavier emphasis on authority or something of that sort. They're all appealing to Christian virtues. It's just a prioritization of different ones. And in that circumstance, I think we have to, again, go back to the identity issue. If your identity is localized in Christ, we shouldn't expect a difference in the emphasis of the virtues. It should be universally the same because there's one church as opposed to many different ones where you get to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that you keep and throw out. Consequently, when we ask, are these people all Christian nationalists? Well, I think they're all nationalists who claim Christianity as support. They use it to fund the idealism, the nationalism that they already have present. Their locus of identity is not rooted in Christianity there, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to make a quick comment. If you are listening and you want to call in, the number is 888-995-5552. Again, it's 888-995-5552. And a reminder, we're talking about the question, should nationalists be Christian? We so far have covered the question of identity and its difference from actions the question about the moral authority. We've asked questions about the, pl- the relationship of the political parties, the relationship of uh, maybe some of the faults in which nationalism can f- find oneself in is putting, <laughs> putting nationalism in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of ended at this one point, and that is we've got the, we've got the nationalism thing down. Mm-hmm. The question, though, is what, what role does Christianity... Mm-hmm play in this as a Christian? What do you do, right? We have a very clear understanding that a Christian who's a mechanic or something, they're going to, you know, deal honestly, Mm -hmm. right? They're going to work as best as they can, right? Ethically. Mm 
mm-hmm. they're going to ensure that the contracts are upheld, keeping their promises and not lying, mm-hmm. right? But as, because we're going to be heading towards a break soon, but I do want to start cracking open the question of, okay, but what does it look like for a Christian who, for vocation, vocationally speaking, say if they go into politics, say if they think that we should um, be voting, we should be having, we be actively participating in law, we should be doing all these things that would be quote unquote nationalistic. What does that look like? Yeah. Another good question. Thank you, Logan. (laughs) So it comes down to how are Christians supposed to function when their locus of identity is in Christ as opposed to other things. So we've already talked about how when your identity is rooted in your party, nationalism, something of that sort, things conform to it, including Christianity. But when you are a Christian and Christ is at the center of your identity, you have to orient the things around you towards Christ. We talked about how Paul says these things have to be in conformity with the gospel, walk in step with the spirit, and things of that sort. So then the Christian then has to ask the question, okay, so I need to have the things around me conform to the gospel of Christ. What does that look like in a practical sense? And that's where we get into a very difficult question because there are different laws in society. How do we change laws? How do we affect legislation? What do we do in those circumstances? Because back in the day, when Paul's writing these letters, we don't exactly have a say in government. He was writing when Emperor Nero was ruling over the Jewish people at the time. Consequently, they didn't have much a say in how laws are formed or anything of that sort. We in the 21st century have a democratic society where we get a vote in elections, and that has a real repercussion in the legislation that's in front of us. So we can take certain principles that Paul espouses and apply them to our lives today. It's a bit messy, but we can try and do some stuff. And I think the things we're going to try and go over are particularly about the pedagogical influences of the law, the law as it serves to espouse Christian virtues, things of that sort. It isn't going to be a one-for-one correlation in terms of the Bible says this, therefore we do this in terms of theology, but we can try. Yeah, yeah. And as we start heading over to our break, music is playing. Um, the question I think we should say is, what is the, is patriotism perhaps something that's going to be viable for the Christian? The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to apologetics.com and click donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting apologetics.com. The following is an editorial from Salem Media Group the owner of 99.5 KKLA. Hi, this is Pastor Dudley Rutherford, Senior Pastor of Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch, California. Many of us were pleased about the recent Supreme Court ruling putting abortion laws back into the hands of the state, and for good reason. 
Many states had laws ready to be activated to protect life based upon that Supreme Court ruling. But other states like California are now trying to remove any and all restrictions to abortion. Proposition 1 on the November ballot would permit late-term abortion for any reason. A significant majority of California voters oppose late-term abortions, and a full 70% believe that human life begins at viability or conception. It is a rare occasion when you and I have the opportunity to protect life on a statewide basis here in California. But that is what your no vote on Proposition 1 could do. It would continue to prohibit abortion after viability, which is 24 weeks of pregnancy, and late-term abortions would be permitted only to protect the life and the health of the mother. We encourage you to register to vote and between now and November 8th, vote no on Proposition 1. We're told to be good stewards of our money, but there's a financial storm on the horizon. Do you have a safe harbor for your retirement money? I'm Michael Cordova, founder of the Gold Financial Group right here in Los Angeles. And if you've seen the news lately, you know we're facing devastating market downturns, war, and the highest inflation rate in 40 years. The King James Bible mentions gold and silver as real tangible wealth, so I've made it my mission to help you find safer financial options. If you have money in the bank, IRAs, 401ks, the Gold Financial Group can show you how to diversify your money into real tangible gold. Call for your free no obligation gold investor's guide at 800-214-9023. 800-214-9023. We're keeping your money safe and working harder for you. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Welcome back to the uh, Church and State Report, where again we talk about the things you're not supposed to be talking about at church. We are a ministry of Apologetics.com. I'm your host, Logan Zapiri, and my co-host, Ben Wagner. Say hi again. Greetings. <laughs> Greetings. Uh, we're taking live calls. So give us a call if you have any comments about our topic. Uh, the number is 888-995-5552. Again, it's 888-995-5552. And the topic of tonight's discussion is, should nationalists be Christian? So far, we've covered questions like the asymmetry of the question, about the question of identity, questions of actions and how those could be misconstrued. We talked about the disentangling, the kind of nationalism question as far as as it pertains to political parties, as it pertains to loyalty. We've covered quite a bit of ground. <laughs> but if you were here just before the, the break, we had said, okay, we've had a, f a fun kind of tour of just a bunch of stuff regarding sort of the assumptions of the question. But we mm -hmm. do want to actually answer the practical, pragmatic, you know, uh, kind of rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. What does it look like in the Christian faith? And we said there are two things that we want to look at, the question of law and the question of patriotism. Mm -hmm. And during the break, I think we decided we want to hit the patriotism question first. I think it'll make the question of law mm -hmm. a little bit easier to understand and more easier to uh, you know, more accessible. Mm -hmm. And... Well, I guess we'll just we'll just start with this. What's Christian patriotism? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's good to put Christian patriotism against the backdrop of Christian nationalism. So as we defined earlier, nationalism is the love for a country that is rooted in the country itself, or at least my conception of it. Yes. And consequently, when information contrary to my conception comes up, I can either accept a new identity or reject that information in the circumstance that I reject the new information, which contradicts my conception of what the country is supposed to look like, that results in things like the January 6th riots, where they don't believe in that stuff. 
However, Christian patriotism, I would define as a love for one's country where the locus of identity is not rooted in the conception of that country. Instead, it is in something else. For the Christian, it's well, it rooted. Would be, we could say, not, not to cut you off, I'll let you, you continue, <laughs> not to cut you off, I'll be a hostile witness. Um, we would probably say it's rooted in the love of the country, not in the conception. It's not an identity thing. It's an <laughs> action thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, right, love is a verb. I don't know. Pop, someone to call and Don't say that. But the idea is that patriotism of any sort would have to be rooted in the love of something. Yes. Love of that thing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not rooted in your conception of that thing. So if I have a blind love for my country and things contradict what I see in it, I'm not going to be able to fix those problems. But when you observe it from an outsider's perspective and your locus of identity isn't something which is willing to accept new information, even if it is harmful or says bad things about that something that you love, then you're much more able to change it in a positive way. So the way I would explain this is with a wife who loves her husband. And in many circumstances, the wife loves her husband unconditionally. It is not rooted in whether or whether or not they do good things. For the nationalist, it might be that the country has to do good things in order to merit their love, but we would say the patriot doesn't. So going back to the analogy of the wife, she will love her husband unconditionally and always try and improve that person being to whatever extent they can. If you don't have that love, and instead it is based on merits or something of that sort, then you might not even be wanting to change it you have to have some objective view, some other form or locus of identity before you can even want to help that thing. Yeah. If I don't want to help the thing, it's not going to get any better. It's yeah. just how things work in general. Yeah, and I do, I, I want to, if I, if I may, I want to pull a quote from Chester, and that's actually the quote you provided me, <laughs> and it's a quote that I provided maybe you like years and years ago during like one of our high school ministry conversations. Um, it's one of my favorite quotes because I think I end up writing a thesis on this quote and I ended up, um, I think it, I think actually Chesterton is right, which I think is mo- more substantial than just finding it pleasing to read. He writes in, in his book, Orthodoxy, if there arose a man who loved Pimlico, this is just a city or a location. Yeah. You might say that the American equivalent would be Chicago or Compton. Yeah. Then Pimlico would rise into ivory towers and golden pinnacles. Pimlico would attire herself as a woman does when she is loved. For decoration is not given to hide horrible things, but to decorate things already adorable. A mother does not give her child a blue bow because he is so ugly without it. A lover does not give a girl a necklace to hide her neck. If men love Pimlico as mothers love children, arbitrarily because it is theirs, Pimlico in a year or two might be fairer than Florence. I want to stop at that portion of the quote and have a and kind of unpack that for a bit. What Chesterton is getting at, and this is absolutely incredible. <laughs> I, I, I love Chesterton, so anything he says almost is incredible. In the same vein as this quote, he, when you have your identity satisfied, right? The mother has her identity. She is the mom, right? When the kid, when when the understanding of the child's identity is a child, you can then sort of, as a lens, be able to view that child through love. It starts with the love, mm-hmm. right? Love of the child. It's not this sort of other way. And we can give, I mean, unlimited examples of this where when love becomes conditional, mm. if you do great things, then I will love you becomes incredibly difficult for children, for adults, for your friend at work, right? 
Or if you say, I'm going to uh, love something that's not real, right? We see these examples of the child. You know, this is a kind of stereotypical rebellious movie example. <laughs> you love me because you thought I was a great child. You thought I was this person or you thought I would be the person to, you know, rise up and take over mm -hmm. the corporation. But actually, I'm not that thing, right? Mm -hmm. If you can arbitrarily at the beginning provide that foundation of love, mm -hmm. then it seems that what can rest upon that is the understanding and development of that thing. Yeah. And even in psychology, there's a huge basis for this. I think it's actually called the Pygmalion effect, where if you think or want something to be great, it eventually becomes that thing to some respect. A good example of this would be, let's say I'm a coach for basketball and a kid fresh out of high school comes on my team. I assume before I ever see him that he's going to be amazing. If I want him to be amazing, I am going to spend so much extra time coaching him. I'm going to pass him the ball more in practice. He's going to get the time on the court that he needs. And because of all that, he actually becomes better as a result of it. If I didn't want him to be good or I didn't think that he was going to be good, I would have never given him any effort whatsoever. I wouldn't have had the ball passed to him in practice. I would have just had him sit the entire time. And consequently, he's probably going to get worse as a result mm -hmm. of it. There just tends to be this natural simplicity in that if you love something and want it to be good, it becomes good. And we see this even in Christianity. God didn't love us because we were great things to start off with. Romans 5, 8 is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us before we were ever good in the first place. And in that, he's willing to redeem us. He's willing to make the thing good to a respect. And in a very similar way, when we come over to the Christian conception of patriotism, it's not just some love for your country that is conditioned on some prerequisite. Oh, the country has to have a good economy or it has to agree with me politically. No, instead it seeks the betterment of it regardless of its condition. And that is what is able to change the country and actually make it into something beautiful. So when we go back to the Chesterton quote, where it talks about, oh, if men loved Pimlico as mothers love children arbitrarily because it is theirs, loving it unconditionally, Pimlico in a year or two might be fairer than Florence. And in that respect, when you love the country arbitrarily, you just love it, it is able to become something better. And I think that is the case. <laughs> yeah. And well, I think this is the foundations of when you talk about patriotism, because sometimes people conflate nationalism with patriotism. I think patriotism is a very much a valid relationship in which a Christian could have to their country. And I think what's important in this, I mean, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but then we have to ask the question, okay, what are the biblical grounds for that? You mentioned a few of them. This seems to be the sort of Christian narrative with Christ. Mm -hmm. You also see these themes themes picked up with maybe like in the Old Testament with Abraham and these sorts of things where like mm -hmm. God's affection came first, mm -hmm. right? This even goes back to uh, if you if you study some of the doctrines of the Trinity and its relationship to creation, it's the idea that there was sort of this eternal state of love between the persons of the Trinity by mm -hmm. which creation then comes about. Mm -hmm. And this is where you see, if you dive a little further, where you get these analogous examples of like, you know, this is also fun to talk with high schoolers <laughs> about, where they're like, what's the relationship? Actually, I had a conversation with high school about this. Like, what's the relationship between love and creation? And it was kind of funny. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to name the high school that asked me this, but they're like, you know, was God bored? 
<laughs> and so then he created. And I said, you know, it's an interesting question. Why don't you ask your parents? Were they bored? And so they had a kid. <laughs> and you're like, well, that's not really the way. And it puts an odd, it, it puts the idea of love and creation in an odd place, mm -hmm. right? And you can hash that out. And we did hash that out that evening and talked about like why that seems, I mean, the question itself is odd. And it's odd for some reasons, namely because it just seems like an odd thing to say that something like love is just a, produces things because you're bored. It actually seems a very active, very creative process. Mm -hmm. And this is why throughout the Bible you get the marriage analogy with Christ and the church and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Because love tends to be a creative outlet. Yeah. Right? It's fundamentally creative outlet, and this is how Christianity views it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have some biblical support. You have creation. You have the Old Testament with Abraham. You have Paul talking about it. Um, Romans 13, first objection. We're <laughs> supposed to pray for a country, and that is it. That is it. Right? No? No, 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 no. This is not how it functions. So going back to the Romans 13 analogy, during that day and age, the Romans 13 basically says the government wields the power of God. It has the hammer of justice. It puts it down, not arbitrarily, but in a way that God ordained. Yeah. We have it, to doesn't, it doesn't bear the sword in vain, like I like yes. to quote, you know, be working in government or, you know, having mm -hmm. worked in different areas like that. You know, continue. Yeah, and a lot of Christians cite that passage and they say, see, look, I don't need to do anything in government. I just pray for it and that's how it works. Hold up. <laughs> <laughs> too simple. It's too simple. It should yes. be a red flag. Back in that day, we didn't participate in government because Nero did his thing and we had no say over what was going on. We were not part of the government. We submitted to it in that respect. Yes, where there's a monarchy. Do we live in monarchies today? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially in the United States, right? Yeah, this is a right? democracy. Presumably the idea of loving your country and praying for your rulers and hoping that they're blessed and those sorts of things, these were avenues in which you could love your country, even if it was not up to par, so to speak. Yeah, but nowadays there's a much more practical aspect to this because we, to an extent, are wielders of the government hammer. Because now we actually have say in the formation of laws. The way we help in the formation of laws is that we get to vote on those laws and we get to participate in that respect. And so when we refuse to do that, I actually see that as a denial of Romans 13, where the government, we are supposed to bear the hammer. And consequently, we would have to say, you have to participate in government in order to uphold Romans 13. Yeah. You are a part of it. Well, okay, I, want, I, want to, I want to clarify some things that you said, just because I think when saying we, it could mean just like us to we say this, <laughs> like Ben and Logan say this, so go and do this. Well, if you take Romans 13 at its kind of face value, the idea that you should submit to government, that you should obey its authority, so on and so forth, you have to then ask the question, localized within the United States, where does authority come from? Yeah. Right? The U.S. has been very clear. Actually, Western civilization generally has been very clear, but the United States is, goes a little further and says it's really grounded in two things. One, to protect the rights given to the people by God. That, that's kind of the, the, the means and ends of government, to protect those things. But the second one is this sort of request that its citizens, right, give government its legitimacy through consent. So you have to ask the question, how does the citizens give consent? But also you have this additional view of civic duty where it says that you should hold it accountable up into and including the right of revolution, which we have to get in. That's a hot topic <laughs> debate, very hot topic. We don't have to get into the philosophy of that. But when you, when you start with Romans 13, you can't just sort of say this in the round. You have to say, okay, fine, grant 
that we submit to government. But what happens when the government says you need to participate and you need to do that through holding us accountable and giving us consent to be able to govern? What do you do then? Yeah, in those circumstances, because the government is urging you, in fact, mandating in many circumstances for you to do these things, it would be very non-Christian to not participate. Because, again, the government naturally requires these things of its citizens in order to function, to get those natural repercussions where it's held accountable to its citizens. And if we don't do that, then we're denying Romans 13 to a certain extent. So Mm -hmm. it's absolutely essential in the Christian life to participate in government, at least to a bare minimum extent. Yeah. And on that point, that is, uh, Christians should participate in government. If you have questions about that, mm-hmm. definitely give us a call. We're taking live calls for a few more minutes. Our number is 888-995-5552. Again, it's 888-995-5552. So we have to ask the question then. What does that look like? Some people, to go back a little earlier in the discussion, would say, well, Jesus would help the poor. So that just means voting for welfare part. Welfare, welfare. But see, I'm so averse to it that it's even <laughs> hard for me to say it. Welfare policies. Or some people will say, well, you know, Jesus believed in authority. So just vote whatever authority you think is, is good. <laughs> like that can't, that can't be right. No. <laughs> so the Christian. So we to, well, so we have to look at it. Okay. How do we look at government and law as a calling? That's what we have to ask, answer in the next 14 minutes. Yeah. And so the question then comes, how does the Christian do this love of country to implement the virtues that it seeks? And I think there are a couple ways to do this. So the first is through legislation, and you can do that through voting, and that brings about laws. But generally speaking, laws are not the be-all, end-all for the Christian. Laws largely come through culture. If culture believes in a certain thing, a certain ideology, then it's naturally going to be reflected in the law. So for example, we've recently seen that despite the legislation that was passed in the Roe v. Wade decision made by the Supreme Court, a lot of states instead have gone against that. And that shows that on a state level, the culture differs from what it is nationally. In those circumstances, we say that the culture is espousing different virtues than what Christianity is. And so writ large, the Christian should then seek to espouse Christian virtues in the society around it, and that is then reflected in the legislation. Mm -hmm. I think today, Christians kind of put the cart before the horse in that respect in a lot of ways. We say, let's just get a bunch of legislation passed. Legislation doesn't fix all of the problems. The culture is the first and foremost problem because that is what produces the laws and not the laws producing the culture. And so when we have this large discussion about, oh, there's culture wars going on in America, that's because those cultures are what are going to be producing the laws. And Mm -hmm. in the circumstances where we have Christians that are espousing virtues such as the protection of life, the heavy on justice and reprobation, things of that sort, against a very different culture, it is going to result in very different legislation on the state level. Yeah. Okay, so so then it seems like there's three things then. We're going to have to kind of lily pad and jump across. You have the, the kind of vocational calling to be like in law, right? You're going to be a politician, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be something like that. Then you have kind of the other side, this question, because you can't be in all places at all times, right? <laughs> so the other side is the culture war, kind of like, you know what? 
sure, write the good laws because there are such things as good laws and there are such things as bad laws. It's not a social construction. We, we can address that in a second. But the other side is the engaging the social conflict. Churches need to be lights to the culture. When you have things that are actually breaking society, you should participate and be like, no, we're not going to do this. And here's why. And we're going to engage in it. But then there's this sort of middle ground. And I don't mean middle ground as far as like a compromise. I mean middle ground where it's not really clear where the law begins and where the culture begins. Mm-hmm. They're kind of blurred together. And this is where you have laws that set culture topics. So, for example, you'll see this, you know, when, I, when I'm talking to my libertarian friends, they're like, well, you know, <laughs> sex work is dignifying, right? Now, Christians didn't have a problem with that. Now, it's hard because it's a law combined with a moral presumption. Mm-hmm. How do we navigate that? Is this is this one of those, you know, the memes where the two hands are holding? Is this what we're seeing? Or is there someone, is there a third person? Yeah, so the idea there is that the laws which Christians promote should have some moral significance behind them. We ban murder because we think that life is valuable. We don't like sex work because we believe that marriage is a sacred institution and should be protected. However, if we were to have moral laws that were so stringent that showed us exactly how we ought to live, we would all be lawbreakers because nobody lives a perfect life. And as a natural consequence, the question then comes, where do you draw the line between promoting good morality in the laws and acknowledging that humans are sinful and incapable of following laws perfectly? That is an ambiguous question, which I think largely has to be left to very particular circumstances on a case-by-case basis. If we make one be-all, end-all, we immediately have gone off track. Mm-hmm. Culture is a huge factor in making those laws. Yep. And we cannot say that there's one be-all, end-all for it. Okay, so, okay, but let, let's press that a little bit because I think this is where most people, they'll say, okay, they'll give like a good, it was, it was a good comment, okay, it was a good comment. I'm not telling <laughs> you it was a bad comment. I'm just saying that people tend to like write up on the question and then go, okay, but now, but we'll, we'll sort that for another day. <laughs> what would be some examples that we can imagine? And, and I know that we're going a little off script here. What are some examples where there are, there are a blending of moral policy with things that churches are invested in culturally that the church should be like, no, we're not making this an end all be all, but the culture's pushing it and we should respond to that. I can give one example off the top of my head, and this would be questions about uh, maybe abortion, Mm -hmm. right? Where the church has had a historically very strong and very consistent view on abortion that you shouldn't have one, right? Mm -hmm. We could talk about crisis pregnancy centers, right? The the shift is alleviate the suffering for sure, but killing the child is not an option within the church view, Mm -hmm. okay? What would be other options, other contentions? Other contentions. So another one is gender-affirming care for minors. So for example, there's currently push for legislation that allows minors to have gender switches where they take hormone-blocking therapy or they have their genitalia mutilated to become the opposite sex to some extent. The Christian believes that people are made in the image of God and consequently we need to take a stand on that. There are certain things that the Bible is very clear on, and we need to be promoting those in the culture. Is it easy to pass them legislatively? No. Oftentimes, Christians are easily outnumbered and consequently won't be able to get that legislation passed. But again, the legislation largely flows downstream from the culture. So 
even if the Christian cannot pass that legislation, they should be willing to espouse those virtues in society and take formal moral stances on them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in the last couple of minutes, I think we need to take this home. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we talked about Christian, like Christian nationalism or national should be Christian. We say nationalists should be Christian. We say Christians should be, Christians should be patriots, <laughs> right? Christians should be patriots. Mm-hmm. We talked about some policy, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the law being kind of objective. We talked mm-hmm. about questions about social problems. Where we need to now aim at, is, and this is kind of to wrap the question up, because this is what I'm hearing. This might be, this is gonna be controversial. This is this is why we tuck in at the very end. It's not that Christians should be more nationalist. It's that Christians should be more patriotic, mm-hmm. and that would inevitably mean there would oh. be more public Christian values. Yes, to some extent, and the idea being, when we're nationalistic, we have our identity rooted in the country itself. Yeah, and we co-opt like Christian principles yes. to navigate our own conception of nation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And we don't want to do that. No. Instead, we want to be the Christian patriot, which dwells in Christianity. That is our locus of identity. Yeah. And then we can objectively look at our nation and say, here are some ways that it is failing, but we love it. And because we love it, we want what is best for it. Yeah, objectively best, right? Yeah. Yes, we want the nation to thrive. And so when G.K. Chesterton says, if we loved Pimlico, it might be as beautiful as Florence in a year or two, the same should apply for the country. We love the country and even acknowledge its faults. That is what the Christian patriot is. However, what does that mean in practical terms? Practical terms, we want to go down into how we espouse those good things, those virtues. And we need to remember... That first and foremost, the Christian is supposed to promote those virtues in the culture because laws flow largely downstream from culture. When we say that legislation is the way we fix all problems, no. I believe it was Alexis de Tocqueville who wrote a piece where he talked about even if you pass legislation, that doesn't change the hearts and minds of people. Mm -hmm. And consequently, they're just going to naturally rebel against the legislation that you created. We can see this in states where... Yes, the Supreme Court passed the decision against Roe v. Wade, but people on the state-by-state basis rebelled against it because that's just not what their disposition was. Yeah. And so, in the same way, the Christian should be looking first and foremost to the culture. However, there is something that the Christian is supposed to do in terms of legislation. Yeah. And that legislation is supposed to promote those Christian yeah, it virtues. Should be, yeah, it should promote Christian virtues. It should be good. It should be just. It should be loving. But, like, Christian just Christian <laughs> love. Like if I'm going to like I, you know, squish these terms together, you know, Christian patience, cr- these sorts of things, Christian help, you know, you, you know, pushing against sort of some of these policies that will, right. These nationalistic policies, you'll support our policy and here's some Christian virtues. You flip it the other way and go, actually we're Christian. These are the values we're going to support. And these are how they're going to flow outwards mm-hmm. into culture or into law. Right. Cause as you know, law is a sort of a form of uh, instruction you know, right and wrong, what's permissible, what's impermissible. And so I think that it becomes for the Christian patriot, the accusation that you're being a Christian is actually like a good thing. Like when they say they're like Christianity's in politics, you're like, yes, because Christians (laughs) are in politics. You know what I mean? Like, because Christians are in politics or like, wow, Christianity's in culture. Yes, because Christianity should be proselytizing the culture. It should be making these arguments because there's actually a good to be had. And if you miss out on Christianity, there's actually real harms. And we're seeing this with 
as we said with this concern for abortion, this concern for gender, mm-hmm. ge- quote unquote, gender affirming care. Yeah. And so to wrap it all up, the identity should be rooted in Christ. So that way, when we see the world around us, we can look at it objectively, love it to a better future. And that happens in both legislation and in the culture that the Christian sees around them. Yeah. So Christians shouldn't be nationalists. Christians <laughs> should be patriots. Yes. Have a good evening. Good evening.